Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future. This episode of the podcast is supported by Studio11music.com, your friendly and professional music studio. If you need production, recording, mixing or mastering on your music, Mark can definitely help. With over 200 million streams on Spotify alone, tracks that have gone through Studio 11 are making waves and getting plays. They work with everyone from some of the biggest names in the industry to young and aspiring producers. Contact Studio 11 today for more information. Use the code FELIX to get 10% off your booking via the website studio-11-music.com or simply mention FELIX when you contact Mark via any of their socials to get your 10% discount. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including chats with James Hype, Ben Hemsley, Ridney, Vanilla Ace, Tim from the Utah Saints, and many, so many more. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talk to Dave Tracy about the Dublin club scene, starting out on a surprisingly well-organised pirate radio station and getting on personal terms with some of the industry's heavy hitters and so much more. Dave touches on his personal journey in the industry that includes some low times, but more importantly, what he did to overcome these and the tools he used to achieve success. This is a phenomenally engaging chat with a real top fella. So let's get into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are. Dave Tracy, how are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Felix, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Great to be here. No, we can always, man. It's uh, It's been great. You've uh, Yeah, I've always been... Um, very aware of the stuff that you've been doing and seen a lot of your stuff on socials and I've had a few of the Irish guys on before people like Stephen Cooper Mark McCabe and John Gibbons oh, I don't know. yeah but anyway but you know we'll, we'll go the island of Ireland um and you know just had Paul Woods on recently as well and I had Kiva on so it's great to, to have you part of it man um it feels like this has to be the first question at the minute how has lockdown been for you i know we're all coming out of it now hopefully but how has that those few months been for you obviously you're on the radio but how was it gig wise how was it music wise how have you found it yeah so it's been a, it's obviously a total different vibe for everybody in the industry but for me it was the first time i spent seven days straight in my apartment and then it went so as far as four months so i've never sat down as much or been in one place for as long because i've as much as I, I don't really travel DJing at the moment or prior to COVID, I just was doing a lot of radio, have a day job as well, which is, you know, a big part of my time, uh, family and I coach basketball and I used to do like every day I was doing something and to just be at home and actually sit in my apartment and look at, look around and I was like, Oh, I need to do this. I need to do that. So it's been, I've taken all the positives I can out of it and just enjoyed being at home. I've got a 14 year old son. So like, we were in lockdown together and we spent all of our time. So that's been really, really good in that sense to, to kind of spend time not working. How does it affect? We'll come on to like the radio stuff more later, obviously, as part of your whole journey. But just in a, in a purely lockdown sense, how has that affected the way that you make the show, the way that you present the show? Like, has it has it changed anything? 
Um, so the show for me, the shows that I've done, I've been working with RT Pulse for go to 10 years. And with that radio station, there was no producers. There's no real assistance other than the station manager, Adam Fogarty at the time. So I was self-producing my show, selecting all my own music. Um, it was a live mix show. So it was two hours of me just in the mix and talking over my segues and all that stuff. So for the show, you know, to record the show, you can really just do it as live and just start mixing and start talking. So I was lucky enough to have some stuff at home to do that. Um, I was using tractor, I had a controller to start a lockdown. So I was like, I can just do this at home and send it in. So they allowed us to do pre-records, which is the way we've been able to maintain a weekly radio show. So I was just pre-recording my show on a Friday afternoon once the promos kind of hit and I was squeezing in the last few minutes until I had time to submit it. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been interesting being in my living room, DJing to know like in that environment that I was just sitting watching Netflix in, and then try and get in the buzz of doing my radio show. So it's been kind of a challenge, but it was good. Cool, man. But let's um, let's kick off with the sort of the the structure of the podcast, and we always take guests right, right, right back to those first first early influences of music way before DJing, way before going out, way before, you know, even buying your own records or, you know, getting, having your own music. Just where was those first uh, influences coming from? Was it parents? Was it brothers or sisters? Was it friends? I mean, even probably before friends, like what were, you, what were those first bits of music that you ever really remember listening to or hearing? Um, yeah, so my mother is really musical. And so I grew up in a single parent family, just me and my mum. And my mother was like, she played guitar. She was always the one that was up singing at weddings and dragging me up. And I was like, oh, man, I have to do this again. And it was kind of like party pieces of singing and stuff. And that was a bit of fun. And it's just kind of been a really musical household. And my grandparents were kind of musical as well. And my granddad loved to sing. And it just kind of those influences in my life were what brought me into, like, I had love for Michael Jackson then from a really young age. I was like seven eight, nine, my mum brought me to my first Michael Jackson concert in Dublin. I lived outside of Dublin in Limerick when I grew up. So went to a couple of Michael Jackson concerts, saw like Criss Cross and all these old old heads. It was good crack. Like, But from a young age, like going to a concert at that age is such a huge experience, especially before iPhones and all that stuff was just pure focus on Michael Jackson on the stage. He is amazing. And then you take that home and you're trying to make, I remember myself trying to make like a lot of older DJs, um, we used to make mixtapes by just pressing play record, listening to radio, and try and cut out the DJ before he'd start talking. So you'd have just a solid tape of uh, 60 minutes of music. So that was like from when I was 10 or so. So it's kind of, without knowing it, that's when it kind of started off for me. I think and people, just, I think younger people would argue that Spotify playlists are today's mixtape you know what i mean if you will and that's and that's great and, and and again i say all the time on the podcast i'm not one of those people who's like oh it was so much better back in the day i'm not saying that but the whole mixtape I, I love the whole mixtape thing of like whether you were making it for your friends or a girl you fancied or whatever and do you know what i mean and, like, and then that. like physically having the mixtape having to you put the sticker on and having to write something on it do you know what i mean like, I, I definitely yeah i feel that man and i miss that kind of that yeah, play, pause, like record three button or two yeah. button thing. Um, yeah, it's definitely, I wouldn't say it's a lost art form because it's not. People are still curating mixes and creating music for other people. But there was there was something nice about holding that 
that tape in your hands. Yeah, and, and make sure you broke off the pieces so nobody could record over it and all the little <laughs> tricks of the trade. So yes. you'd go and you'd write what, exactly what it was. So you used to stick a bit of paper in the top of the tape cassette to so record over it again yourself. And it was, yeah, it was a real, it was a mission, but it was good. And you just reminded me of, I actually sent a mixtape to a girl in the post before. And it was like, Charles and Eddie, would I lie to you? I think it was like 12 with a mad crush on her. I was like, God. So I'd yeah, love, thanks for reminding yeah, I'd, me I'd of that. I'd love to, oh mate, are we all, well, if, well, let's say we all did it. I think, I think people of a certain age probably did it, especially DJs, because we were, we were all geeky about it from, from early ages before we knew what was, what was going on really. I mean, I, I think my, I was, I always wanted to know as well, like what's, can you remember the first time that a bit of music was, was yours? Like you either bought it or it was given to you, whether it was like a, a bit of vinyl or a tape or a CD, but can you remember the first time that anything was kind of physically yours? Um, yeah, well, like the first dance track I had on CD was, um, enjoy anthem i think so it was a good old tune but i remember when i was in so like fifth or fourth or fifth um year in school here you're like you're a teenager i was probably 15 and i had a load of tape cassettes and i went to french college for the summer and i had i remember i had ghetto superstar um tape it was like a single i had loads of little single tapes and there was you're not allowed to bring any music in to this thing because you have to speak French all the time for three weeks in the summer. So I was like, I've got my tape, so no one's taking these off of me. So I, I hid them. But then there was older people who were in charge of running this disco and every second night or whatever. I was like, God, I've got tapes here. Let me <laughs> jump up. And I jumped up and I was on the stage. It was like to the side of the stage in a little hall. And I was like playing my tunes and people were like loving it. And then it's like stop and switch it over real quick to get the next one on and that was my first ever kind of djing thing i was like without knowing it i was pretty much djing to all of my peers at this college french college in the summer um so they were the kind of you know first handheld stuff that i had that i was like these are my tunes i'm playing them for people were you aware of like and again it always sounds like a silly question were you aware of djs prior to that french college experience like were you were you aware of a DJ on a, on a radio station? Had you been to a gig or a or an underage thing and seen someone DJing? I, I wasn't looking at what I was doing as DJing at all. I just realized I was right. playing music. But the DJs that I would have, I wouldn't have known of any people who were playing like nightclubs. I didn't even know what nightclubs had kind of even yeah. existed at the time. And I would have listened to radio here and radio in Ireland, like 2FM, which is I'm a part of now. Um, it's like the equivalent of BBC Radio 1 of, of Ireland, effectively. Um, and it's, that's where you heard like all of the, the top 40 on a Sunday. Um, you'd hear like the different DJs putting those songs out. They're the people that I was recording songs from, we'll say. So it was, that's about all I really knew of it. But when I found myself in this French college playing songs, I didn't realize that that's what DJing really was or what I was doing was playing music to a crowd. I was just like, I'm the one that has tunes here. I want to hear them for myself and I want my friends to hear them. So that was kind of the vibe it went on and uh yeah it turned out to be kind of a half a career i think it's oh we'll get to that don't worry i think it's oh, yeah. i think it's interesting because the world in which we live in now and the world that exists now it, it almost seems impossible to think that you could get much past the age of i don't know when you've got you know, you've got your your um son like it seems to me like it would be very hard to get past the age of 12 or 13 without being aware that people are DJs and, and, you know, and DJs because of the way the music industry works now and the way that things are, are, are presented. But 
it doesn't seem to me that it was that obvious that people, like you just said, before you, way before you go to nightclubs and your friends are going to nightclubs or anything else. And and even when I think back to to being around that age, I'm really not sure I was aware that people were DJs or you know it was it was really probably the radio that sort of like funnily enough someone mentioned it on the it was Ben Santiago last one was talking about roller discos and going and there was a guy DJing at a roller disco and that was probably one of the first instances that I was like someone's actually DJing and then from there probably the sort of Danny Ramplin love groove dance party like Julesy kind of like when you really get the understanding that someone's someone's DJing but mm. that was much much older I'm gonna say you know at least 15 16 whereas I would say you'd struggle now to be 12 without knowing that especially in the social media age and you know Joel Corey and people like that I'd struggle you'd struggle to not know that these people are DJs and that's what they do yeah I think the the sell of the word DJ is completely different now as well so like someone is a DJ now because they're producing music and they're in the charts or they're on Spotify but none of the younger people that will be referring to like like would say Joel like know Joel really well and like all of his young young age um what would say people that go to his gigs would it be at least the underage gigs that he performed with Seagal or Jax Jones are probably 16 plus um, but anyone younger than that would just know him as a DJ, which is just be because he made a song, not because he actually performs live in any way. So it was two different things between 20 years ago and now. I, I feel like totally different. Um, yeah, massively be- because, and I think, you, I mean, you'll be the same as this. And I've, I've lived through this as a, as a DJ and someone who's tried to make records and a promoter and stuff. And it was like, realistically, you know, when I first got into to the sort of the scene and and I was, we were, me and my friend were putting on nights when we were 18 at clubs and stuff, but like, but you were booking a DJ then realistically because of their skills and, and fame as a DJ. Do you know what I mean? Not really because of the records that they'd released. Mm. Um, or if, and if they had released some records, they certainly weren't top 40 you know, radio, daytime radio records. You know, you might have had a Sasha Expander or even like, and someone will shoot me down in flames here, it may well be you. But I don't But I don't remember, you know, Roger Sanchez, Another Chance being daytime radio one at the time. Like, it was a big record for Roger Sanchez, but I don't feel like it was the same level as Lonely for, for Joel Corey or whatever, but you, you may well point that out to me. But it, it, it does, there's definitely been a huge shift from being a DJ like Carl Cox, it still is massive, but was then was for being renowned as a DJ and for, you know, four decks, turntables, skill, everything else to straight up to the Avicis and the, um, and the, um, Joel Corey's who have become massive DJs because of records. Um, and I'm not, I'm not slating that in any way, shape or form, but it's an interesting change of position, isn't it? Which is what you were talking about. Yeah. I think if you look back, people wouldn't have known of a DJ until they were of clubbing age. So, like, my first clubbing experience was I went from Dublin to Birmingham on a bus to meet my cousin who lived there. Yeah, I got a bus, ferry bus, to Birmingham. Went to God's Kitchen to see Lisa Lashes, right? That was my first experience of clubbing. And um, I wouldn't have known of her, only for going to a club to see her. And then I liked what she did. But even Roger Sanchez, even though he had a track, prior to a track that got any bit of fame, they wouldn't have went to mainstream to anybody who wasn't in the club scene. And that's why like clubbing was 
pretty much a lot more underground, even though it was popular. It was definitely a lot more unknown to people. I feel yeah, like it was- one, one of the things that I, I would say, which it makes you make me think is I remember getting ministry of sound anthems, you know, CDs, those double CDs, Pete Tong, Boy George, um, you know, Jules, probably those kind of, you know, the double CD anthems, um, like that you got and i remember going me and my friend going to ministry of sound one of the first clubs that we went to when we were of age we snuck into local nightclubs you know in in a small provincial place that i grew up in the north but we went to ministry when we were when we were still you know just over 18 we didn't grow up in a big city one of the things that always struck me then was like they're not playing what's on the CD. You know what I mean? Because we went to Ruling and it was like Jazzy M, Paul Jackson, mm-hmm. like kids, you know, um, it was, and it was, it was, it was US vocal house and garage, really. But we mm-hmm. were there like, why, is, why aren't all the records that we know on? And it's so interesting what you say, because now we grow up in that world where you can watch Boiler Room sets, um, abode live streams, you know, you, you can watch Camel Fat live from wherever, you know, you know what's getting played by these guys in the clubs because you can access it on Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube. We didn't know what was being, I didn't know what was being played in the Hacienda. I didn't know what was being played in Cream. But I got the I got the, the CD album, but then it was nothing yeah. like the actual experience of being in that club. I think that that's like music back then, the name of the track or even the artist didn't matter as much as it does now. Like now you look at it, you can see it on Spotify while it's playing. But if you're in a club, even a lot of the records that I, own they're in my living room and there's like white labels and all i'd know is from what kind of a squiggle i put on it or i might have figured out who it was when it was when somebody said oh that's such and such and i'd like scribble it down who it is or it didn't matter it was actually the piece of music was probably more effective and you wouldn't go up to the dj and go oh what's that when you play two two records ago and you're like i have a clue man what am I so you ask me questions like that so it's now where people can just look at it on their usb they can go to the name was that or they can look at it in their tractor history or whatever it's a very different access to the names of music i think so yeah, i always i always find it's it really, a big juxtaposition which is that it is music is so much more disposable today and there is yeah. so much more music because it's so easier to make so that to me is a double-edged sword in in the sense of it's it's great because anyone in their bedroom with any sort of level of cheap computing power can make a global worldwide smash you know that's in theory that's that's possible mm. which which couldn't happen at that point you know even the moraleses of this world were using huge mixing desks in only studios and you know it, it was changing a little bit at that point but it was still really hard to go and make a, a proper dance record if you didn't have expensive outboard hardware gear so the gatekeepers and the ability to get into the scene and break through is easier. But but on the flip side of that, everything becomes so vastly dilute, diluted. Um, and, I, you yeah. know, I, I often don't know which is, is better or worse. I think in the vinyl world as well, it was like to get a record to vinyl and to get it logistically put out there was a different ballgame altogether as well. So you'd have to have some money and you'd have to have an, a being doing gigs to get us back into circulation and all that kind of stuff. I remember like, you know, we'll probably get onto it in a minute, but first buying records and stuff and in Dublin and how you got to know artists was by having the record and you go, who's this person? Then a couple of months later, might go to London and you'll see they're playing ministry or playing egg or playing cross. You're like, Oh, I got to go there, see them, Do you know, cause you have one of their records on vinyl. 
and that's how you discovered people. And then they're like, they're a sick DJ, and they're like, wow, this is, and that's where the experiences came more so, rather than now you make a track, then all of a sudden you're a DJ, but you're actually just a producer, and you've got to stand up there, and you're probably a bit shit because you haven't done it before. And, and like, also, and also, and we're shooting well ahead here. Don't worry, I'll come back. Yeah, to yeah. You. But also, it's it's so much easier to DJ. Like so, so if you you know if 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 you'd, I mean, I've, my turntables are behind me, my records are all around me, but. You know, I remember how difficult it was to learn how to to DJ on vinyl. I remember how difficult it was to to get a mixed tape, a tight sixty or ninety, recorded without any errors, and the amount of times I used to swear, scream, and shout, go out the house, come back and start again, and press record on my mini disc player. And again, I'm not knocking any of this. I happily, you know, DJ off tractor. I have I have controllers. Like I use CDJs or whatever I can use, and I use a, a phase DVS as well. But I happily use all technology available to me. But where I'm coming to on this point is you couldn't have you couldn't have produced a track or had a track produced for you and then gone out and blagged it in ministry on, on turntables. You couldn't. But I could probably anyone with, a, you know, a little bit of in, intelligence and a little bit of rhythm, I could probably put them on a on a on a controller and within probably four hours get them to the point where they could go to a club and do a set. Hmm. Um, and again, that's the things that have. That have changed, and I'm definitely not judging that it's right or wrong, good or bad, better or worse. Absolutely, yeah. it's just interesting that there's been that 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 change over the years. But coming back to you, as far as you, you know, we had the, the French the French um, camp experience when you sort of unwittingly started DJing. I mean, after that, was there a point when you were like, right, I really want to get into this? Did it did it creep? Did it? Were you like, were you searching for it? What were the steps that you know after that where you're starting to fine music are you starting to understand that someone's a dj or was it just did it did it just sort of was it not a big thing for a while how did it happen so when i was i think what happened was i went i changed school when i was about not long after that camp actually i think i changed school the following year from like down the country to dublin um because i moved to dublin when i was 13 and i met some guys in my class and i think one of them was he was quite wealthy and he had a set of decks uh, he, I was like, what are these? This is cool. And then I went to his house after school one day, and I was like, he's like, yeah, I'm a DJ. I'm, I'm cool, you know. I was like, I'm going to be a DJ. And um, so then I remembered when I was younger, I was in, my mum and myself were in a car accident. It was like no one was hurt or anything. But I remember there was a claim off that car accident, and I got £2,000 or €2,000 or something when I was 18. I was like, winner. So this money came through, and I was like, I know what I'm doing. Bought myself a set of cam belt drives and I had a, like this yellow synergy mixer, I remember it well. And I had it in, in my bedroom and I was like, so then I was 18, living in Dublin City. I was like, right, I can pick up records, start figuring this out. Your man told me where he gets his. So there was a shop in Dublin called Abbey Discs. I'm sure Cooper or Rory or any of those guys may have mentioned it. But um, so Abbey Discs was our our most essential dance music vinyl record store um there was like hmv started stock some stuff as well and there was a couple of others but if you wanted like your hard dance or your trance or your whatever was a happy hardcore and all sorts of stuff that was about at the time that's where you went so i was like 18 fresh i was like i need tunes going in like you're getting with vinyl so people who don't know what vinyl shopping is like when the guys behind the counter don't know you you're getting the bottom of the barrel stuff 
and it's like here's some tunes i'm like cool so you got to listen to them all in the shop or like literally dropping a needle through oh yeah sounds good sounds good nice break nice build da, da, da. and then i was like right this is good you're spending all the money you had from like, i was working in a sports shop or something and bought a load of records and went home didn't have a clue what i was doing and started to learn how to beat match i was like writing down on the on the paper part of the record like plus if this one's at zero this one's a plus two this one's a minus two you know i was getting a bit of a sequence and i was like right that needs to sound so i figured out all the, all the phrasing of the tracks and all the ways that worked and I, I don't know how i don't even remember how that even came about or how i learned it but figured it out somehow and then i just became kind of decent enough at putting tunes together and i had a good collection as well because i was quite insistent on buying stuff all the time don't know why but i spent all of the money i had on it and i had that 2000 at the start you see to kind of kickstart the whole thing so that was like the, i think the decks were like probably 800 all in or something it was so i had all this money and i kept buying records with it so that was my full first bit of music collecting for djing and then as the guys got to, so then within dublin you know it's a small enough community once you get to like once you turn up every week and people learn your name and then so there's other DJs in Dublin, like like Rory Lynham was one of them, Cooper, a guy called Al Gibbs, uh, different people. And we would have all kind of just seen each other in there. And then it's just like the little nod, oh yeah, saw you here last Friday, because that's when the tunes came out. It's like very much like now. It was kind of like, you get to Friday. And then all of a sudden, I've always been really kind of chatty to people, to adults. So I grew up with adults, no really other kids around. So I was always really well able to chat to adults. So the guys that worked in the store, I was very well able to have conversation with them. Um, from like I don't know, I was eighteen, but at the same time, it, at back then being eighteen and chatty wasn't really as big a thing as as common. So I was like full of beans, full of chat, and started picking up all these records. Then next week they were like, "Oh yeah, Dave, we got a bag for you here." So you had a bag of records, which means you're now able to go behind the counter, pick up your bag, and stand at the other side and play your tunes and listen to them. Then also like that's a that's a whole step up in the game, really. Like so, um, yeah. So that was kind of where it all kicked off then. And Dublin community kind of just I like, kind of grew into it a bit then, but just meeting people all the time. So you mentioned going to um, to to Birmingham to, and you saw mm. I went to God's Kitchen and you saw yeah. Lisa. Um, what were some of your first? clubbing experiences in in dublin and what was the scene like back then like what was getting played what clubs were you going to what djs were you seeing like these i mean i'm, I'm, I'm talking like really yeah. early kind of stuff like 17 18 19 so it was my that cousin that, that i went to visit in birmingham um he was mad as a brush like he was he still is um I'll, i'm sure he listened to this he knows exactly what i'm talking about um but we went i went over there and it was, i was like holy crap this is I was not expecting what I got over there. I was like, I'm still like, you know, it's obviously there's a huge drug scene in, in dance music. It is what it is. But I've, I've never actually gone down that road just purely from just, I probably got shocked on the first, the first event at a club. And I was like, oh, so I was hanging out with him in Dublin when he came back over to Dublin. And you know, he was like, okay, let's go to this club. And I was like, okay, cool. It's a club called Spirit on Abbey street in Dublin, close to Abbey discs. And, you know, that's where Roger Sanchez was playing on a Saturday. Um, there was like a couple of clubs, little clubs called, I think it was Isaac Butts it was called. It was like a, kind of like tunnels 
quite kind of like the cross. Yeah, like the archways. Um, yeah, the archways. Um, and that was like Smoke and Joe, Joe Tivanelli. Um, who else was there? Like Eric Murillo, like people thought Terry played there. It was like so it was all quite those, housey. It was quite. It was always very housey. Okay. Yeah, very housey scene. And those kind of guys, you know, I was hanging about and I was kind of just chatting to people again. And then one day, um, I got started to DJ at after parties for these clubs that I was going to at like three, four o'clock in the morning in someone's kitchen. I'd have the tunes, so I was the go-to guy tunes they'd have the 12 tens i'd bring the records and i'd jump on i was always a couple of years younger than the people i was hanging out with so i was like 18 19 and all the everyone was like 23 and i was just like so everyone's like oh here's little dave coming in playing tunes i know but i was playing like you know cafe del mar and all the big tune it was like big trancey stuff as well that was that was the vibe then big trance music in a house at four o'clock in the morning Everyone was like doing their thing, and I was just drinking cans of seven. I didn't even drink back then. I was drinking cans of seven up, like Red Bull, whatever it was. Um, I was like, this is, I was in my element. It just didn't matter what was going on around me. I was like, I'm playing tunes. They're mixing nicely. Everything is good in the world. And um, yeah, so that was it. Kind of just the after party scene in Dublin was kind of where I got into playing for people yeah were they your sort of first gigs like in front of people that you didn't know which is always the way i phrase it like you know they were the Mm. sort of first gigs where you were playing records in an environment that wasn't your house to people that you you knew them but you know they were they were a crowd essentially yeah Yeah, exactly and then where did you get your first sort of gig yeah like first gig first gigs that were like kind of didn't have to be paid but you know more so in a bar or a club environment yeah so the that chloe mentioned isaac but it was down near the like big train station in Dublin. Um, and I was going in there. I don't know. I think it was, again, it was my, that cousin is a big part of playing a whole lot, but he knew, he knew people and people knew him. And then, you know, through whatever channels. And I was like, then a guy introduced this guy in an apartment and he was like, Oh, I'm running this gig down in the Isaac, but we've got Joe Tivanelli in next week. Uh, do you want to open? I was like, sick. So next thing, because I was playing kind of funky house then, it was kind of like went from trance and funky house at the same time, and he could do both. He wouldn't play trance, obviously, but I the the skill of opening for somebody was what I kind of I don't know how I had it, but I just knew music and what to play early and what to kind of vibe with. And um, so I was doing like a funky house set before Joe Tivanelli, who's like an Italian house DJ. Um, so I'd be on like the first guy, and I think there was somebody else on after me, and then him. Um. So I was getting these like good hour, first hour kind of sets, um, and then I was just kind of did loads of those, and I was open for like was open for Smoke and Joe and Eric Murillo and Todd Terry, um, and even at that time, so I was probably I'd say I was probably nineteen twenty, I was probably twenty at this stage, um, but I got Todd Terry was over and he was playing, and his management, this is a weird story, but his management were so keen on what I was doing that they wanted me to be managed by them and go and play in New York at something. I didn't get the full detail of it because the guy who was running the club night said he was my manager. And he fucked it all up. Excuse my French. Um, he, yeah, he wanted to get, get money out of it for himself. And then it all went sideways and it never happened. But uh, I look back and I go, what if I had went to New York with Todd Terry? Where would it be now? But 
it's um that's that was the thing i just i got all these little gigs and then that was kind of where it was solely house music for me i was playing just house music and dance music and then i'll play the after party and then i'd text my mom to pick me up outside mcdonald's at 10 a.m in the morning and say i've got a bag of records here we're gonna, we're gonna do with them so yes yeah, so that was how kind of basic and innocent my introduction to dance music was and then where did and then what's what what are the next like steps after that really i mean you don't have to be like individual mm. steps but like did you hold a residency did you start a night where did the radio come along like what where, yeah um, so the radio was actually quite in line with that i started on pirate radio it was called nova 947 here yeah a couple of the other boys were involved with that um so we were i was in there with a couple of guys again it was all just literally bumping into people at all these events and chatting to people and i was like oh, i can do this I, I opened for him at the show so then they were like i'll oh, come down to the radio station it was just like a warehouse some furniture warehouse and one of the lads dad's owned it was like upstairs and they had all the setup it was great so then started doing that got a drive time show at like seven five till seven every day which was sick i was like those three days a week it was wednesday thursday friday and I had a job in on O'Connell Street in Dublin, so it was really close to where this thing was. And I used to bring my records in to work with me and leave them at my desk. I was working in an office doing property management at the time, still, and I still do that now. But um, I was doing that, and I was bringing this bag of records in. Everyone was like, what's that? What's that big bag? It was like a 100 bag. It was huge. Um, so I was, then I lugged that down, did a radio show. I was literally just mixing vinyl and talking. It's like not very far off what I do now, <clears throat> but it was doing that. And there was a guy in there called Ronan O. He's um, still a very good friend of mine. And that's when it was kind of CDs started coming out then for using them. Well, using CDs for gigs was starting to kind of become a thing. So he used to do a gig in a bar um, and he was like, oh, can, do you want to cover my gig on Friday at seven till nine? I was like, sweet. So I was doing work, radio show, and then managing to get over to this gig in a in a pretty much a Tex Mex restaurant bar and playing music at seven till ten, actually. And then they used to give me my dinner as part of so you'd be at the decks eating your dinner. Um and that was it. And then at ten o'clock I was finished everything. I was like, what a day. But I was playing at that point, kind of, it was a bar. So I was going to play like a bit of Funky House, then a bit of R&B and stuff. So that's when it kind of branched into like a bit more commercial stuff, um, playing R&B, which is like, at the time it was great because that's what everyone wanted. All the girls wanted to hear. So they were all dancing. And I was 21. And I was like, this is sick. Because DJing, like, it was alien. It was still like, all that was, this was a new discovery of parts of DJing. I was like, chatting up girls, I was having a great time. Yeah, and, I remember. I remember uh, going to to London when you mentioned about that getting your dinner thing. It was like I remember I'd been I'd done a bit of DJing when I was younger, um, in the local clubs and bars or whatever. And but I went to London to to go to uni and uh, I ended up sort of um, got a bit lost in Freshers Week and ended up going into the sports bar just down from um, oh it's not Leicester Square I forget now but it's like the big sports bar I don't know if it's still there. Over Garden. That's right, yeah, and and, and oh, they used to have like the big like Formula One cars hanging from the roof mm. and all that kind of stuff. And I, I remember wandering in there and um, just full of booze and young confidence. And remember going up to the reception, going, "This, I better DJ. How do I get a gig in here? Do you know what I mean?" And um, and they were like, "Are you a DJ?" I was like, "Yeah." 
um, wrote, stick your details on there. And a guy, um, I don't know what must have gone wrong because it never happened to me ever again in my life. But the guy rang me up about two days later and said, oh, I said, you've signed your details and I want to give you like a, you know, a test shift or whatever. It was like, get yourself here. We'll give you dinner. Um, It was something like 250 quid, ludicrous amount of money, like back then, 250 quid. Mm. And we'll get you a taxi home. And he was like, how's that sound? And I was like, on the phone, it was like someone had told me I'd won you know the lottery yeah, with the yeah. bonus ball and i wasn't sharing it I was like, i've made it but just you saying that was like you know because even now it would be like oh, i don't know but like at the time i just thought i would i had absolutely i think i was getting probably 60 quid a night for doing five hours back up north yeah 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 no mention of I was a taxi my dinner while djing as well <laughs> that was the thing it was like sneaky you're trying to not look like i was chewing a lot of food was gas but even, but, um, as even as you're saying it there, I'm thinking I would do anything to go and DJ in a Tex-Mex restaurant tonight. Like just because I haven't done a gig for so long. I'm like, yeah. I'm like I'll go and do yeah. anything. Just give me a gig with people dancing. I'll take it. Um, so, yeah. So then, then, so then how's the sort of what? Yeah. What, so from there, are you doing more and so more? Then, on the- yeah, I got kind of more and more of that gig um, because the guy Ronan had another gig at a cl- across the street at the club. And that started, that was like a 10 till... That was a long one. That was a 10 till 3 gig. Um, like gigs, like people listening, like gigs back when we started were five hours long. <laughs> it wasn't like you put on a long record to go to the toilet and that's your only opportunity. Um, but it was like, so then he was doing that gig. Because this guy was kind of, he was a couple, again, a couple of years older than me. So he was a couple of steps ahead of doing exactly what I was doing. So he was going, I was kind of migrating in in his footsteps all the way. So I was doing a ra- doing a radio, doing the seven to ten slot, and then I gra- gradually then took over his residency across the street in a club called AKA. Um, I was doing a Thursday night, and then I was doing Thursdays and Fridays, and then I so I was doing the seven to ten and ten to one, or ten till one on a Thursday and ten till three on a sat on a Friday. It was mental when you add it up, like, but. It was fantastic. I didn't ever get tired of it. And there was never never any boredom. It was always just like, I knew if the gig started at 10, I was going to get there at 5 past because I had to literally wrap up, run across 5 past 10. The manager was like, Dave, I was like, look, you know I'm coming from there. And he's like, yeah, grand. And he's, he was a manager and I was a manager or a mate of the manager in the other place. So they all knew. It was also, they were like, Dave will be over to you in five minutes. Um, How did that, so with, with the Nova, like with the pirate radio, always like, Always super intrigues me because it was nothing that I was ever a part of, and it was nothing that I ever really listened to. I mean, I say we have, I've had this conversation with with Steve with Dean Cooper like about Atlantic two five two or whatever. But like around where I grew up, the whole like pirate radio thing wasn't a thing. I didn't live in a big city or anything like that. So with with your pirate radio show, did you ever have a any idea of how many people were listening, or b I know it was way before Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Did you ever get any like did people? call you did people recognize you did mm. people ask you for stuff at clubs did they say oh, i'll listen to your show or did you did you think you were just literally broadcasting to the ether um no i knew i was broadcasting to dublin because they had a burner phone as you call it now and you get the texts and it'd be the same people all of the time but i knew them in the clubs then as well because they'd come up to you be like a girl would come up and go oh, that's i'm susan and i'm like <laughs> Ah, Susan from the texts. And, you know, that was kind of the, that was the way it went. Um, but I knew there was people listening. I I was actually never really nervous or anything either. 
Um, I know my my tone of speaking wasn't probably what it is nowadays, but um, yeah, it was very interesting because it was, and again, it was mixing vinyl. So you only talk once your mix was, you knew it was tight and it was going to last for a minute. So your amount of talking was going to be quite limited until you got into CDs, which kind of do their own thing a little bit more. Um, and it's funny you mentioned, mentioned mini discs there. It was like mini discs to play all those things and ads and everything that was happening. Um, but yeah, so the radio, I really enjoyed doing that. And again, you kind of get, you'd, you'd have your slot or else if they knew you had your records with you, they'd be like, oh, here, can you cover this show? And you run in and you do it and you do your own as well. <laughs> I mean, it was very um, mismatched because there would be no time for going off air until they got, they got a couple of computers then where they could run like all night and just do a playlist kind of thing or mixes would trigger hour-long mixes would trigger every hour or something like that where you'd have that kind of stuff but um it was pretty like when you think back it was a pretty professional entity they had going it was it was good work and the guys that run it like um they were they're still around and a huge part that i was going to call nile redmond um in dublin he's part of rt pulse now still with me there and you know he's a Again, another amazing DJ, amazing stories as well, if you ever get an opportunity to speak to him. Um, but So yeah, the, the Pirate Radio, I really enjoyed. Um, I don't know when it kind of wrapped up, though. It was kind of an ongoing thing. Um, but I kind of was doing all the residencies then, so I think I kind of dropped that off at some point. Um, and then it was kind of lots of gigs every weekend, so I couldn't do the radio and then the middle gig and the late gig and work. And Not that I was tired, I was just didn't have enough hours to get from one thing to the other. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of that. Then. Um, and what, the residencies what, kept going. Yeah. So talk format. us through a couple of those big residencies, like, like the ones that you enjoyed, the ones that were the longest or, yeah, just talk us through a couple it, of those. It was kind of, again, it, in Dublin, like now versus then it was again, very different. You mightn't have a residency, but you'd get a gig, um, get like 150 quid or something for us. It's never big money in anything, but you were getting, you, know, you were getting a few quid here and there, um, and like there was a couple of clubs in Dublin, like that I got to play in, like Spirit, again, which was probably our Ministry of Sound at one point, and the equivalent of the artists that were coming to play there. A place called the Red Box, which again was a, a iconic venue in Dublin, which then turned into a club called Tripod. Not long, you know, more recently, and then closed and became an office. But um, there was a place called the Chocolate Bar, part of that, where you kind of have your side gig of the main club chocolate bar was part of the red box and you'd have like funkier stuff and people would go down there for like a cool drink and uh, being kind of a bit more classy and then go back to the madness in the red box main room um then there was the pod which was underneath the red box kind of another venue and it was housier where the red box was more kind of progressive house if you like um and there was, you know, it was a huge variety of music in, in all of them, but I think that was kind of the main divide of what the two were um, when I was there, at least. Um, but yeah, they were kind of the big club gigs I was getting. Um, but then, and bars, like the bar scene, or the kind of disco bar almost kind of opened then. There was clubs like a place called Traffic, which was beside Spirit on Abbey Street. And Abbey Street was kind of a good club, club street in Dublin then. Um, like for people who were listening to the spirit is what is now the academy in dublin um and it used to have a big egg-shaped dj booth which was floating and it used to have roger sanchez and four decks and incense in it and it was amazing so it was like yeah 
little sticks in the side of his big glass water gas. But that was, you know, and that's, they're the memories I have of it all. And looking into that boot going like, he's just a whole class act. Um, but since like fast forward a couple of years and I'm sitting in a room chatting with him at a festival going, here we are. Yeah, we'll, but, get, we'll get to yeah, it, get the that. ITE stuff. Like, um, did you, did you, um, did you get out of Dublin? Did the DJing take you, you know, to Cork or other places in Ireland? Did it take you north to Belfast or anything like that? Or did you just sort of stay in those gigs in Dublin? It took a long time for that to happen. Um, okay. I think because, I think it was the sort of social media element of it. There, there wasn't that. So it was literally word of mouth. I may, I may have went north i think it was went as far as monaghan which was it's the guy with the guy i was working that guy manager guy um was like you know he gave me huge opportunities at the same time um he john he brought me up to gigs that he was running he was a promoter so he was running gigs successful and unsuccessful like everybody um some of them were great some of them were strange you know but it was all about the towns they were in or the venues like I remember there was a guy called Dino T, Dino Thompson from London, um, Ministry of Sound, resident DJ. Um, he was a dancer. He was, he was a great guy. But he, m- me and him did a gig in Monaghan once. Uh, it was called like I Love House or something. And he, Tino flew over. Uh, we were in, driven up in the, your man's big BMW. And uh, this is, I was like, oh, this is great. And we got there and there was no one in the room. Like, it was like four lads dragging each other around by the legs or something. It was mental. But that was, you know, you get win some, you lose some. But it's still, we went, we DJed. And Ronan was at that. Ronan was part of that kind of gang as well. So it's time. But looking back, and it was so, it was so much fun looking back and remembering these things. Like It's, but, it's interesting. Like, I mean, I, I get, you know, reminiscent of that. What I miss is just the the amount of places that were open and the amount of, of stuff that was going on um and i know you know it's changed a lot in a lot of different places and i know from speaking to some of the old guys that you mentioned before like stephen cooper and and um and matt mccabe and you know and rory that especially rory mentioned this just brought it up that there's just there's just not as many mm. good clubs and bars anymore do you know what I mean and i think that's i think that's the same in most places and and yeah that brings different gigs and it brings different opportunities and you know again i'm not i'm not getting lost in a in a, in a world of oh, it was better back then but even just listening to you ream off those places those venues and see the twinkle in your eye and the smile yeah, on your yeah. face it's like i miss you know i, I missed having those you know even if i, I could name you the play, you know i mean I, could, I i never lived in well lived in london for a little bit but i didn't grow up there but i could name you the clubs that have closed in london you know like turn mills and mm. uh, you know the cross and stuff like that you know i'm gutted that you know that, that the arch is closed up in glasgow you know it's great news that um you know my, my boss aaron mellor's just bought those places in manchester like the deaf institute and gorilla it's been big news today like tim burgess mm. has been involved and stuff so it's great to see people keeping clubs open that have closed the wellies announced that it closed in hull you know shout out to terry and, and that crew that with deja vu that were there for years so it's it's just it's just nice going down that like alleyway with you hearing about all those all those places because it has changed like dublin today well you know pandemic aside even dublin yeah. last, last christmas didn't have as many clubs didn't have as many of those places it, it's a different scene yeah like the club scene in dublin is like it's good out there's like plenty of people that have a lot of comments on it but for me like i was doing I kind of went into DJing. I stopped DJing actually for two years, pretty much when I was 20, some early 20s, because my son arrived. Okay. And I was like, uh, 
Um, then we, yeah, so he arrived and I was like, right, DJ, and I think it actually was 2006, seven, and everything just fell apart. Anyway, kind of boom, the bus bubble had burst in Dublin for um, the first time around. And I was like, gigs were drying up. And I, that's when I kind of finished up that AKA residency. All that. So that all came to a stop for me. And I was like, grand. Um, you know, became a dad. And I was like, right, focused on all that. I bought my apartment that I'm sitting in still, um, which is great. But at the time I bought it and I was like, right, I'm going to do all these other things. Focus on that. I was working being that. And then, um, you know, I was, me and, me and Aaron's mum were together for a year. And then we were like, right, we're friends. Cool. And then I was like, right, I had like all this time back myself and I was like okay so because my son lived with me half the week and his mum half the week and it's, that's always been a, a really solid agreement and we're great friends all that so it's a really easy going situation so I was able to say right I'm gigging Fridays and Saturdays so all of our Sunday Monday Tuesdays and like Fridays you know so it was a really kind of fluid arrangement which was great because you know you got to be able to maximize family time when when you can be a DJ as a lot of guys know so the Ability to go out and DJ with, with, with no pressure came back, and I was like, great. So started DJing again. Um, that's when I got into like the likes of the right venue in Dublin. Um, through, again, through managers that I knew that had been gone, gone from the older bars or who were like barmen in bars that I was at before. And they were like, give me a shot to go and do that. And that was like a super, that was the super club for a long time in Ireland um, from all angles. Because that was like, oh, I started DJing with like Oliver Heldens and Don Diablo and all that was kind of future house thing. I was had a, a nice in there with a guy called Christian Homan, who was another big DJ in, on Pulse and in Dublin. Um, me and Christian were the residents of a thing called Future Fridays, I think it was called. Um, and it was a future house kind of vibe. It was housey. It was pushing pushing the kind of, the first gig we did was with Futuristic Polar Bears, I remember. Fran and guys, so yeah, so yeah, so that was we did that. Um, that was good, that was kind of got back in, and that venue as well was at the time was quite what's what's the word? I had like another bit of residency there as well before that had happened. It was like just a Saturday night big room dance tunes, kind of very much probably like what you had in Newcastle and stuff, Yeah. yeah, digital. Um, that was just a big, not banging night, but it wasn't necessarily a residency in the same format as you would have had a couple of years later where it was like yours to hold on to it's kind of like i'm here on a regular basis but it's not my night or my gig that i'm pushing in many ways so but that was really good um that venue and then it was kind of it was actually when i started getting back it was it was 2010 maybe then yeah that was 2000 getting into 2010 um and I'll, this is kind of a bit more personal now, but kind of on a personal side, I was really suffering because I'd lost my day job. I'd lost my day job. I had my apartment that I was living in with Aaron, and I had to move out of my apartment and rent it out for a year because I had no solid income. So I moved back into my mum. I remember I was like five weeks into it, and I was like really, really depressed. And like depressed in in the real sense like of you know i wasn't just feeling sorry for myself i was like it really hit me like a ton of bricks 
didn't want to get out of bed, didn't want to do anything. I was like, my mom was a huge support. And I was like, right, went to talk to somebody, which I think is really important for people to do. And I think, you know, it's a lot of people talk about how important it is. But I went to see a lady, spoke to her, went to like six visits, I think it was. Uh, I know we're kind of going off topic, but I think it was really important for guys because at, at the time in that, it was it wasn't really the done thing. Um, I didn't really talk about it to a lot of people. But I went for, I think, a hypnotherapy. And see, I was getting the highs of DJing. And then the lows of going Monday home morning. yourself. Yeah, or just going home yourself. And it was kind of a, lo- it's a lonely industry, whatever way you look at it. Yeah. Um, and I was like DJing, you know, I was still just a drinker. So I wasn't getting the huge downs. People were probably getting them one day. But you still get a huge hit of adrenaline DJing and then it's gone. And you're at home and it's four o'clock and you're like, what? So then I was, so then I was like still doing a bit of DJing. It was really low. When I talked to this lady, Went through some really, really good work with her in hypnotherapy, it was called. Um, and the key that came out of that, she was like, every time I spoke about music, in when I was, I wasn't hypnotized, I was just in a, in a, you know, in a deep state, and I was like sitting down and then my eyes closed. I sat up in the chair when I was talking about music, and she said, my energy, like she was very much about energy and spiritual stuff now, but she said, like, I, the whole room changed when I started talking about it. So then I was like, right, Jesus. So I was like, what am I going to do? So then she helped me with some visualization. So I started doing the visualization. And I was like, right, what am I going to do? And this is before I started working in RT Pulse. I was like, yeah, I really like radio. I loved radio when I was doing it. And I wanted to give myself some goals. So I was like, um, this is also actually just before the residency in the right venue. And I was like, I want to maybe DJ again. Let's say, put a fi-. she said, put a figure on how many of your audiences. And I said, oh, 2,000. Because I knew I'd gig- I had gigged to you know, 900 or 1,000 before. I was like, right, 2,000. Set, set my goals big. I was like, cool, do that. And then I was visualizing all these things and I just said, like, every day, you know, just have a think about it. You grow, like, what comes out of you, uh, what you visualize and want to do will eventually come for you. Like, and I was like, cool. So put it out to the universe. Have my goal for DJing 2,000 people. Um, and she said also that with the radio, I was like, yeah, I like radio. And she goes, right, who's your radio idol and it's like oh well it would be Pete Tong um, so, so I told her who he was and she's like right well why don't you print off a picture of Pete Tong and put your face on it and then put it on the back of your door I did this I took all of the guidance I needed I was like I need all this so I did that um, the next thing I knew I was in RTE Pulse um, with Christian Homan he brought me in as a friend to be like, because he knew I was, I was his friend at the time. He was like, he knew I was down. <clears throat> he said, I'll oh, come along to the studio with me. In there, I met a guy called Dave Timpson, and Dave was like, oh, do you want to do a demo for us? I was like, oh, I've nowhere to do it. He was like, oh, you can do it here. You know, a friend of Christian's a friend of mine. So I was like, okay. Did a demo. Uh, got a show. All this within the space of six months. I went from not knowing how to get back into DJing to DJing an RT radio. I was like, Christ. And I didn't, but I at the stage, I wasn't, even measuring it, I was just like, this has happened until I looked back and realized that a P-Tong picture was still there. I was like, it didn't make, then it started to make sense. But then I got the residency in the right venue, which was a mainroom capacity of 2,000 people. <clears throat> and then I was like, this is weird. But it was exactly what I was putting out there. Um, and believe it or not, people will believe it, people won't. But those figures exactly came about for me. Um, and then just jumping forward six years, I was in the studio in BBC Radio 1 
doing a show back to RT Pulse that was on the back of my bedroom door. So, like, this stuff is real. And that was another, it was again, that was through my friend Jay Forrester, who um, is now Danny Howard's producer on Radio yeah, 1. I know Jay, yeah. And Jay brought, you know, I was over to do something. I was like, Jay, and he, he organized for me to use a studio in BBC Radio 1. And I was like, yeah, I'll just wire back my show to Pulse. Because I was going over to a gig in ministry. And it was like, but like when you look back on all that, and that's exactly, it was a stu- the studio Pete used. I was like, this is like mind blowing. Um, but it took a long time for it to happen, but it manifested itself because I was constantly driven towards it. Um, like that's a whole podcast on its own when you think about it, but it's a huge part of that. So like I went back to her actually after a while and I was like, yeah, these things are coming through. Um, and I set myself some new goals of figures of people to DJ to. And the first one was 9,000 and the next one was 13. And the 9,000 was when I DJed at Electric Picnic um, for 2FM in a tent called Rankin's Wood. And it fit, well, I think it fit like 10,000, but the, the people that were in it was nine. Um, and then I played the three arena in Dublin, which had a capacity of 13 in the arrangement that they put together for the gig. So I was like, this is just wild. What was the gig um, at the three arena? What was that one? Uh, so both of them were two FM gigs okay. uh, with a girl called Jenny Green doing a, she yeah. did a concert orchestra she event. Does, she does stuff with Al Gibbs as well, doesn't she? I think DJ. Yeah. Wise. So yeah. I was, uh, I was opening and closing that event to that many people. And so it was like these things. So I've, I've actually not set many goals since then, but I need to start again because it definitely works. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think yeah. it does. How did you find the difference between the, the pirate radio and being in the studio in, 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 in RT, did you find it intimidating? Did you find it exhilarating? How was the differences? It's, it might sound weird, but it wasn't very different because RT Pulse was a dab station and the guys who ran it and all of the guys that were on it were, the guys that were on it had been on Nova with me pretty much. <laughs> and the guy that ran it was the same age as me. And was it was pretty much do your thing, be yourself, play your own tunes, mix them live, have you know power of radio energy. I was like, cool. Do you know that's what it was? It was it was that kind of a, a thing, and that's like ten years ago, and early now. Um, and so I went on. I had a, my first show was like two thirty on Saturday afternoons, or or two to yeah two to four, and then it was three to five, and then eventually it was. And now it's like seven to nine on Saturday evenings for the last number of years, um, which has been, you know, it's been a great stage for constantly DJing and playing music that I like. And it's led to a whole vast of other stuff that I got into that I didn't realize I liked. <laughs> Yo, so, hit us with a couple of those those highlights that you said about people you've interviewed, places you've ended up. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we started off on Pulse, like any pirate radio, it didn't pay um, like a lot of actually to be honest now a lot of radio stations you have to pay to get on to uh, people know it or not like a, any radio stations that aren't run by you know, a professional body most the lads have to pay 40 or 50 quid to have a show aired because otherwise it's just they'll get some you know or that's kind of just running costs of the station so we were just not getting paid um, for years um, but what it did do was like it gave me something to do on Saturday afternoons, getting ready for gigs, allowed me to collect my music, gave me a reason to collect music. Um, but then 
I was like driving on with it. I was like, the only way, and then with social media, I was like, I need stuff in the show other than me just saying, this is that song, that's this song, coming up next is this song. So I was like, right. Um, and I said to myself, right, I need to, I was starting to get promos sent to me, and I was, you know, a couple of people was kind of going through in flight, and I was like, so all this kind of stuff was growing. And the PR companies, I was trying to figure out how to get a phoner with anybody. I was like, how do you do this? I was like, right, that's with Facebook. And I was looking at who their press contact was. And I was like, right, this was like, listen up or get in or one of those guys. So I was like, right. And I emailed them. I went, Hi, my name is Dave. I work for RTE. Can I get a phoner with MK? And they were like, no. Because <laughs> it was like, he's not promoting anything. Who are you? And that's like, not. I don't know even know who that was. But people were just like, oh, he's not available. Um, but that then eventually I was like, right, I need to proper sell this. So I was like, I work for RTE. It's the BBC of Ireland. I have a Saturday evening primetime nationwide dance show. I want to feature your artist that you manage press for. They're like, thank you, Dave. That's so kind of you. And I was like, bam. So then I was like, right. Got that. Got a few interviews. Got a few phoners. Real nervous to know what to ask them what to talk about. But it, it kind of it started becoming a bit more like I didn't tell I like to talk. So I, it became a, a thing. And you know, I used the Irish stick a lot. It was like, it was like, you're going to use what you have. And I was like, everyone loves talking to an Irish man at some point in their life. They're going to go, going to tell my stories. They're going to tell theirs, blah, blah, blah. So, so I got a couple of these guys. Then I was kind of building up email friendships with the press guys. And they were like, I was like, right, what's happening? I need to go to. And I was like, Miami, Miami Music Week. Like, well, how will I f- figure this out? So I emailed the guys and get in. I was like, oh, Ultra, what's the story with getting accreditation for going to Ultra? We're like, yeah, we'll put you down. So I got my accreditation for Ultra Music Festival, which meant I got a press pass. And then I blagged one of my mates in who lived in Boston had a, had a, had a camera, just because he had a camera. I was like, with my photographer, Dave, from Boston. And they were like, yeah, we'll give him a photography pass. Next thing, I gathered my money, flew myself to Miami. So I was like, Money I was earning from a day job, I was like, I'm going to invest myself just because I wanted to go. And effectively, I saw it as a free ticket to get into Ultra, when in fact, I was actually adding to what they needed people to do. So I didn't see that. I was like, a free ticket, I'm going to fly over. Um, so myself and Dave went to Ultra, and next thing we were like in the, at the main stage, in the pit at the front, where all the press go with their cameras, and like DJ Snake was playing, and I was like, this is wild. Because I was in the States and I was like, Dave was taking a few photos. We had set up a couple of interviews. So we were, there's a press area at these fest, at these huge festivals um, where they've press from all over the world. And everyone's just like me. They were all young, bubbly. There's people from Brazil. There's people from Germany. And it was like, it was like all these crew. Everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's wearing black t-shirts. Everyone's like, we all want to look our coolest. And like looking back when I was wearing, I was like, Christ. Like, you look at them now, but that was the thing. Everyone was kind of like, try to be their coolest and do best and talk to these people for a bit of time, had value. So over overdoing that for a couple of years, I did that. I think I went to Miami overall now five times, four or five times. Um, and first first three times, got my accreditation for everything. Then I was also the side parties, like the stuff in spinning records and all the things. So get in PR are a huge part of the Miami events. And figure like for people who are listening who want to figure out how to be press get onto them you get onto 
all of the different record labels have a press section. You can ask them to attend their parties and they'll give you a response as long as you will give content back to them. And I was like, this is amazing. What a discovery, goldmine. Even though there was like, the thing is, there's no financial gain in any of this for me. It actually, it was costing me money. But I such a passion for it that I was like, this is amazing. So then I built up friendships with the artists because they remembered me every time they met me. And for whatever reason, like, so like I'm pretty much, and it, I've, you know, I've got a lot of phone numbers in my phone now from different DJs. Um, I could see, any, I could go to any of their gigs and I'll be like, give them a wave and then I'll be like, come back and say hello to them. But it's all like you've built up, built up uh, for years of trying. Um, not, not necessarily trying to be their friend, but just trying to meet them. And then, natural thing is just kind of they're like oh yeah Dave sounds I've never I've made a show myself or done anything that would upset them I think a lot of the time is when you're talking to them is not to kind of have to play it cool all the time and if they're like not in the mood to talk like MK is a prime example of that MK is such a lovely guy but he if you look at what these guys have when they go to a gig everyone wants something and I had an interview lined up with him at one point and he was like it's not into it. I was like, it's cool. And it wasn't, it was just, he was wrecked. He was like, I don't really want to do this. I was like, well, let's just skip it and do it another time. And he was like, appreciate it. And there was no drama. I was like, Grant, no, no skin off my nose. But then, you know, I was able to reach out again and say, oh, can I get you to do So the next thing I had, like, did a FaceTime, did a, pretty much what we're doing now, I did a, but I did a FaceTime call with him in a 2FM studio for a new, or Stephen's Day, so Boxing Day show I did on 2FM, which is like BBC Radio 1 in the UK. Like me, MK, um, and all these other people on the show. And I was like, uh, Kelly Lee, I'd miss the jam, I'd rebuke all on the one show because I was like, one of the first opportunities I had to get on there and do a big show. And I was like, I'm just going to milk it for all it's worth. Um, got everybody on and I was like, this is great crack. And everyone was on the show and it was like every 10 minutes I had a new guest. Um, but yeah, that was just all down to kind of and just chatting, you know, having the chats. <laughs> no, man, it sounds, uh, it sounds great. And like you say, you know, these guys are looking for content, you know, they're looking for things to mm. promote their, their music and their tours and whatever. So it's, uh, it's really good. How does, um, how does, is it Aaron, your son? Yeah. How does he see DJ dad? Is it cool? Is it embarrassing? Is it, does he, has he been to, has he, when, you know, when yeah. you know, the first time he saw you play, is he into DJing? Is he not into DJing? He's only into Travis Scott. That's it. <laughs> it's like, he's a basketball player. He loves Travis Scott and Drake. And I'm not cool only for the amount of followers I have on Instagram. And his mates follow me and he's like, don't put pictures of me up there, I'll kill you. And it's, uh, it's kind of like, I think he, he gets that, like, I'm a young dad as well, I think. So he's, a lot of his, his mates' dad would be, like, five, ten years older than me. So I was, in a way, I'm, like, we're on a level. So it's kind of cool. But he's no interest in dance music. He's like, you playing that again? That same song? No, that's, that's a different one. Just it's all, they're all the same. He doesn't like dance music. Okay. Um, but it's, you know, it's good. It's funny to, I'm not going to, you know, I wouldn't force him to do anything. I'd be like, you just like what you like and, um, yeah, but it's interesting. See, see where it goes. How do you um, how do you see Dublin club land coming out of of lockdown? And also, you know, with all the promos you get, the show you're doing, where are you seeing 
music going? You know, what are you liking that you're hearing? What can you see trend wise that you think might be, you know, coming later this year and early 2021? Um, right, well, Dublin's club scene, I was, uh, I started a new residency in January in a, a club called Opium, um, which, you know, I've DJed in lots of times. Um, and the guys, how I started a new residency on Saturday nights in there. And what the guys wanted was pretty much what I used to do in the right venue. Um, it was the same people involved with that. And they were like, just play like house music from maybe five, ten years ago. Um, but, you know, there's newer, there's that that vibe, but it's current. Um, so, you know, I was playing like Endor and kind of stuff that, had hit on commercial and then going a little bit more back to the housey stuff. And it was, it was exactly what I do on my radio show. It was literally me doing a radio show in a club and I was like loving life. And then it stopped in March. I was actually due to do a gig with Mark Nice on my birthday weekend, which was Paddy's weekend. Uh, and I was like, this is going to be sick it's going to be packed because Mark always gets a good crowd. The night was starting to build up a bit. So I was getting, it was really getting there and that was canceled. I was like, so I don't know, nothing to do. So I was back to doing nothing. Um, then, you know, that gig has been postponed to October 3rd, um, which everything crossed will give us a bit of, bit of time to actually get back into it. So I think it, I, I'm very positive that it'll happen, but, um, you know, that will, I, you know, I think some of the management may have changed in the club since because it obviously it's shut and they have to do other things. But I think, you know, the idea of the club promoter is still a promoter and he does a lot of work internationally. He does a lot of work here. So, uh, should have done So, yeah, he's they're going to hopefully continue with that. So that would be a great thing to get back into as soon as it's there. That club is really good because it used to be a club I used to go to. It had different names all the way through. It, was called, it used to be called Mono. It was called The Village. It was called... Uh, it was called Opium Rooms. It was now it's called Opium, and it's it's a sick venue. Like it's just it's great sound system. It's got a, like so yeah, really hoping that comes back. Um, so I think the capacity of the room is nine hundred, so it's a nice size room, and the DJ booth is elevated on a stage, which because they switched it into a live stage venue as well. But nice DJ setup on that, and it's, you're looking at two floors. Um, same time as a big balcony and this main club room so yeah that would be a great one to get back into the club scene though in ireland was really struggling anyway and you know the super disco bars were kind of the thing um and then djs and them are like it's it's anybody it's not really it's i don't even know who they are a lot of the guys that are djing in the bars but um, excuse me if I've offended anybody, but it's like, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of really good DJs that have been doing bars. And I know it's kind of gone out to suburb bars, suburb bars where the guys that I know are DJing now, like swords, where the right venue is a place called chalk bars. Like that's kind of a, it's again, it's a big bar, but it's like a clubby bar. Um, lots of places called a Camden in Dublin as well has become a sports bar, but it's like, there is a dance floor, but it's irrelevant. It's like a walking area with a big bar on the side of it. So everyone kind of congregates in it. So it's, yeah, again, great DJs there, but the clubs, clubs where it's, where it was like dance music, district eight, 
um, has taken yeah. over what is, but that was gone from being a warehouse in the city center to the right venue, actually. The right venue shut down, and now District 8 has placed itself in the same room, but they've made it a lot more industrial. It's yeah. like it's it raised the floor to one flat level, uh, where the right venue used to dip down, you walk to walk down into the dance floor. So now it's one big flat warehouse kind of vibe, everything is black. And it's it's a solid venue. Um, is so that where be, you'd get if you got Salado in town or someone like that? Is that where? Yeah, they'd so be? Ca- like Camelot have been there. All of the big, yeah. all of the big techno guys play there. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of, that's where that is. But again, it's out of the city, so it's you know people will travel now though because they you know they want to go to what they want to go to. But it's just that it is that bit far away, and it's not like the venue is. It's a double venue. It's called Jam Park, which is like a a day. By day, it has like markets and event space, and then weekend it turns into a club, as opposed to being a purpose-built club anymore. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So it's a, it's a Saturday venue only, I think, um, or maybe just some Fridays. But so there's there, and then the clubbing scene, like you know, I said Redbox Tripod. That venue is now an office. The Academy is still there. Um. But there's a couple of like small gigs. There was a gig I played recently called. And the name just kind of says what it is. It was called Belters Only. And it was literally, it was that, but it was all of the, it was really fresh piano house, like Robbie G would play, um, Bissett, who's another guy from Dublin playing, like creating piano house that I used to play before, um, 15 years ago. And that is what they're doing. And it's so big for the people, like everyone in there is an MK fan. It's that kind of a club. Um, but it was it was perfect. It was ideal. It was great. Um, played that two or three times as well prior to lockdown, like build up to Christmas and like New Year and stuff. It was it was sick. Every weekend was just queues out the door. So that was you know something that will come back. I know for them guys and whether the venue changes or stays where it is, that was that was a good one. So there's there's people that want to go clubbing. It's just there isn't somewhere necessarily to go. So that's kind of. That'll be the making or breaking of it because it was a festival scene there for a while, wasn't it? But they're not going to happen either. And what are you seeing music wise? Like, obviously, you get all the promos, yeah. you're <clears> selecting <throat> stuff for your show. What are you What are you feeling? What do you think is, you know, of what's getting sent here? Where do you see music, the sort of music that you like and you're playing? Where do you see it arcing to? Yeah, it's strange, like, because when you've been around a while, it's it's all come back twice now. If 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 not once, definitely twice. Um, so I always steered away from classics. I had a, I had a, some weird thing with classic music, dance music that I didn't like. I just hated the fact that it was being rehashed all the time. Um, you know, kind of played all the time. And I was like, I hate this. Um, so I was always like, oh, I have to play new music. I have to play new music. And now the new music is those classics with a different kick, and I'm enjoying them. Like there's a couple of them are, are good. Like there's some good stuff, and I'm like, actually, it's not that bad. And because it's new, I like to push new music all the time on the show. So I'm like, I'll play it. Um, and it's you know, so that kind of stuff. The retro piano house is always it. I think that's always going to work regardless. Like the heavier stuff, like I know Salardo have gone a bit. I mean, Camelfat went a bit darker on their stuff now. Um, you know, they obviously had the big hits, but and the big stuff like um, 
it's around almost gone time. a bit progressive, hasn't it? The camel fat stuff, yeah, like obviously say, the Christoph bit, thing, breathe, and it's yeah. almost gone a bit like Pridzy progressive. Yeah, and the newer ones as well, like the the stuff with um, with Jan is like hypercolor, and there. So like the album stuff that they're putting out is kind of again, but it works for their sets. Like I've been on stage with them last summer in Ibiza, in in high, yeah, and it's what an experience. Like that was that was pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, so that kind of stuff. Um, where it's going, I don't know. It's, see, I because my show is so varied in commercial and club sounds. You know, like I'd be, I love the champion stuff, like Joel Corey's new one, Head and Heart with M and E K, and like it's funny because I know there's an extended team behind all these tunes, like, and I know nearly everyone that's involved in the tune. From there's probably like ten people involved in it, and I know them. All. I'm just like it's great to see them, you know. So, but that's one side of what the show is because I think it's important to have a vast type of music on a show like that. It's like a Mr. Majam dance anthems kind of variety where he goes old, current, future. Well, I was taking a lot of like look to what Jam is doing and what Pete Tong was doing or Annie Mac and Danny and just being like this is exactly what I like to do here. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of it's tough to pigeonhole what will be in clubs because Ireland has two different kind of scene, couple of different scenes, like any city, um, I suppose. Like if you go down to Cork in the south, that was always famous for Sir Henry's in the rave scene, which is um, like Fish Go Deep, Cure and a Cause, come out of Cork. Um, you know, huge track back in the day. Still big if you play now. Yeah. yeah, so so like you go back to there. So like there's but now the Cork is always being housey and kind of tech housey and then then all of a sudden there's loads of people playing like Psytrance I'm like so there's that there's that pocket of music and then there's the techno people who are quite close knit with them it's like it's a kind of a scene techno and Psytrance and stuff um, I know I'm kind of I'm probably tiring them off to one brush but it's a, it's a, it's a scene we'll say and then there's the tech house rollers that you know that are becoming a lot more mainstream. Yeah. Um, but where it goes from there, I'm, I don't know where it's going to go. I think the piano house stuff is on a on a build again. Yeah. I think it can. It's a lot more. It's a lot easier for Joe Normal to walk into a bar and listen to piano house than it is yeah. to entertain themselves with tech house rollers for an evening. Yeah. If you like. If you put it like that, um, like you go in and you hear Robbie G's latest one with Hayley May in the, in the bar, you're like, ah, oh, get shots in. You know what I mean? It's it's a different kind of energy. So I think that will always stick around. I've always played it, and it'll always stick around for for time. I think. Yeah, I um, think, and I, I also wonder what the what if any sort of reaction to the past five months or so will be. I don't know if people need happy music. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I know that even as a producer myself, like there's been tracks that, you know, no one seems to be putting out a lot of tech house rollers. Do you know what I mean? Everything that I had that was a bit techie, we've tried to push back and the stuff mm. that was a bit happier and a bit more, you know, Spotify friendly for, for, you know, for argument's sake or radio friendly was the things we were trying to move forward in the release schedule. So I don't know what, what the reaction will be. I don't know if there's going to be a glut of absolute tech house bangers that drop in October, November, December, because yeah. we've opened up clubs again and everyone wants to just get the strobe on and lose a, yeah, yeah. lose a nut. Or if it's the fact that it becomes very piano-y and disco-y because people are just looking for some happiness and they're looking for, you know, 
So I'm not I'm not really sure 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 of that really. Yeah, you but, mentioned disco, but I think definitely like the disco, like what Defected are doing with like Defected and Glitterbox and all that, that appeals to so many. Um, young and old and you know, dance music fans or not. So I think that's where they're growing and doing great things. Like is that kind of stuff. So I think that yeah, like piano house and disco house kind of vibes is definitely a right, well, as soon ball. as I get off the call, Dave, as that's what I'll get producing. Yeah. <laughs> right, we're gonna we're gonna start wrapping it up. There's two features yeah. to end the show, which is number one, um I'm gonna ask you to curate um a gig, um, like a sort of a dream gig. It's it's in the moment, it's right now, it may well be affected by the fact that you haven't gigged for a while and there's lockdown. You know, it could be different if I asked you in six months, sorry if I asked you six months ago, but right now I want you to curate a gig um, I want to know, first of all, where this gig's going to be. So it can be somewhere you've played before, like the right venue. It can be um, a generic thing, like a small room or a big festival. Um, it can be somewhere you have played, somewhere you haven't played, whatever. But first up, there's going to be a venue where we're going to have it. Then second up, we need three acts. Um, it's not so much a headline thing, like is it not? It's just three acts, mm. you know, sort of top, joint top billing. You can be on the bill or you can just be attending. We can have back-to-backs. We can have live stuff like the chems or, or, or whatever. You know, if you want to drop a band in there, you can drop a band in. We've had all sorts. But Dave Tracy, I want from you your dream gig right in this second right now. Where are we going to have it? Okay, so the kind of gig that I see that I would like to have is low level on the floor with with the audience so there's a bar that we kind of a club slash bar called traffic on abbey street which is closed now but it was um it was one of those ones where the dj box was at the very end of the room after you walk in everyone had like it was a tables and kind of tables and chairs you know you could sit around tables but there was a massive dancing on tables kind of vibe so traffic on abbey street um would be would be the one for a venue if I had to go out tonight and, and DJ at it for a while and DJs to be on the bill or acts to be on the bill. Um, that's an interesting one because there's so many. Are you going to play? Yeah. Good. I have to play. I'm playing <laughs> <Good>. months. <Yes. laughs> um, yeah, I'll have to play. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely, the ending will be a back to back to back because it's so much fun to do it. Um, like I know we like friends of mine that I I'd, I'd like to be, like at least be friends with these people because I know they'd all want to DJ as well. Um, so DJs that I like to DJ with, um, someone who blows me out of the water every time I see him is James Hype, and like technically, just he's just on a different level, and it's nearly embarrassing to go on and just play one record to another after he's been on. So. Um, you get a bit of James, probably a half an hour of James, because it's a it's a powerful thing. So we get a half an hour of James hype in there, because um, you probably play about a hundred records in that period of time. Um, so there be yeah, James hype myself, um, someone who's really good DJ and producing great stuff is Endor, and a really nice guy yeah, to, yeah. to hang out with and have a beer. Um, then and a couple also of still these. celebrating because leads have gone up. So yeah, you know, I mean, oh yeah, still doesn't. And he's actually just signed another record to Defected. Amazing. Um, as well, just there, something he was chopping together recently enough. So you know, he's been doing great things. Um, I kind of keeping it to a close. I tried to bring in some of the old crew, the guys that Ronan O, who is somebody in Dublin who's very well known, and he's just he's a 
he loves a party and he's just great crack. So there's James Hype, myself, Ronan O, Endor, um, who else? Jeez. Probably, I'll probably get one other, someone who I admire and I love to see DJing. Um, and just, just for the pure banter of a fisher. Nice. I think um, <laughs> that's a mixed bag. That's a good. That's a good lineup. Yeah. Um, well, I'd, I mean, I'd come. I'd be. I'd, yeah. yeah. I'd, if, I might have to swim across the Irish Sea. But good. Anything at this stage. I'll be, be, be making my way there. Um, like, if people yeah, want to find out more about you that don't yeah. know, where can they find out more about you? More about your show? Like, just hit me with some links and things to Google. How can people find out more about you, sir? Yeah, I think so. Like, I, I'm a huge user of Instagram. So like at DJ Dave Tracy on Instagram is where I do everything. I used to be like, I started everything on Twitter. Um, but that's kind of now that's big now. So yeah, Instagram at DJ Dave Tracy. Um, yeah. And then the radio shows. So I'm doing radio shows on RT Pulse every Saturday, seven to nine. Um, I'm doing a weekly show on select radio in the UK as well now. So that's, it's early on a Wednesday morning. So if you're commuting or when we get back commuting, it's your Wednesday morning, listen, 7am job. Um, it's pre-recorded, but it's it's good content, some great sh- stuff in there. And as well, I, I curate a Spotify playlist called Dave Tracy Selects. Um, it's kind of what I've tagged, been, ended up tagging myself with now. But that's, again, it's my top three every week of what's fresh and a future select, which is a record I know is going to do stuff over a while. So you know, there's 24 hours of music in that already because um, I hate deleting songs out of it. So it's uh, definitely something worth follow. Well, that links into the last thing. So <clears throat> the last, the way we're going to play the show out is you're going to choose a record. It's just really a record of this of this podcast, of this moment. So if someone's been listening to us have this chat, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, I want you to introduce the record. I'll stick it in in post if you need to send it to me or whatever. But ex- introduce it and explain why this is the record that's playing out this chat. It can be new, it can be old, it can be something super fresh, it can be that first thing that you got on tape, it can be anything. It just sort of sums up the mood that your head's in right now after having this chat and and sort of to imp- impress something on the people who've just listened to us have this chat. It's actually come into my head so quickly um, and it's Kings of Tomorrow finally, um, which... I didn't think it was going to come into my head that quick, but it did. So Kings of Tomorrow finally is something I used to play all the time. My sets when I was opening, when I was talking about earlier, uh, played with Sandy Rivera, who is Kings of Tomorrow a couple of times. Um, back in those early gigs that I was doing, admired all them, you know, again, defect records, admired them greatly. Um, but it's most more recently. So I work on, on two FM and, a friend, a very good friend of ours in there passed away uh, suddenly, a young man, like he was 34, and his name is Alan McQuillan. And it's kind of, you know, it's a sad way to end the show, but it's a, in, it's kind of a twofold. So one is because I've recently played that on 2FM for him on his anniversary, and so many people were like, what is this tune? Where can I hear it again? And it was so impactful for the moment that it was. But if you listen to like the intro, the first couple of vocals on that is where do we go from here? Um, and that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> so you it's, know, it's written, I mean, it's written, you know, Julia, Julia McKnight wrote it about meeting a maker. She might, she, she wrote it yeah. about, about someone dying and stuff. So it is, it is very poignant yeah. and it is one of my, my favorite records. Uh, thank you very much for the chat, Dave. It's been absolutely amazing. Uh, and I hope to okay. catch you again soon, man. All the best. 
yeah thank you Felix Leiter's In The House the podcast about DJs what they do and who they are 